0: What is GDPR? And more importantly, how does it impact you and your company? Join internationally known data privacy data protection expert Jonathan Armstrong and Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, to learn more about the burgeoning world of data privacy and data protection.
1: After listening to this episode, you'll walk away with a greater understanding of what this means for you and your
0: organization. Life with GDPR is a production of the Compliance Podcast
1: Network. In this episode, we take up the recently announced fine by the Hamburg Data Protection Authority against the Swedish retailer H&M for over 35 million euros for data privacy violations. It's a cautionary tale. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox back again with Jonathan Armstrong for another episode Today, we're going to take up, uh, I won't say salacious, but certainly one of the most juicy cases I've seen uh, in some time, and it involves the uh, UK clothing retailer, H&M, uh, with just some, I think, terrible facts. So, Jonathan, with that short-winded introduction, first of all, welcome back. Well, thanks very much, Tom.
0: Uh, they're actually Swedish by origin, so uh, their full name is Henness and & Moritz, and they're a uh, retailer that uh, is large. I mean, I think they have stores over there in the U.S. as well. Uh, as at November 2019, they had 5,000 stores in 74 different countries. They announced uh, today when we're recording this that they were shuttering 250 of those stores for good. Some of them are closed temporarily. But this involved its operations in uh, Nuremberg, uh, in Germany. And it was a slightly long running investigation into what was initially a data breach. And it seemed that there was a software glitch which exposed part of the HR system and the uh, German regulator, the HMB. BFDI, uh, but let's call them the Hamburg regulator for now. They uh, found out about the breach just by reaching, uh, reading the newspaper and gained uh, access to the premises and gained access to equipment and started looking at what was on those servers. And unfortunately, it didn't make for good reading. The regulator found out that since at least 2014, Parts of the workforce have been subject to extensive uh, recording of details about their private lives. And so this HR system stored details, which, uh, some of which were one-on-one conversations, some of which were managers walking the floor, and some of which were from so-called welcome-back talks. So if an employee went away on vacation or if they went on sick leave, Then they'd have a chat with a team leader before they went uh, back onto the shop floor. And the team leader would record holiday experiences, would record symptoms of illness, and uh, diagnoses if they'd been on uh, sick leave. And all of this was put into one database and the database uh, also had somewhat trivial details about the employee but it also had details of family issues and religious beliefs and avid uh, listeners will recall that a lot of this is special category data or uh, under the under GDPR what we used to call sensitive personal data and that requires extra special handling the data was then used to make decisions about employees, about members, uh, 50 managers in this facility could see the data, and the regulator said that this led to a particularly intensive encroachment on employees' civil rights. So, what the regulator then did, as I've said, is they firstly ordered that the database be frozen, and then they ordered that it be given to them for analysis. And previously, on other episodes, we've talked about these extensive powers that regulators have under GDPR Article 58. They can go onto premises to seize equipment, which the UK regulator uh, has done in connection with the investigation to elections, for example. They can order processing to be shut down, and they can request information either from data controllers or data processors. So, if this had been outsourced to PeopleSoft or another uh, online people management system, they could have served the notice on the data processor as well. And here, HM complied with the regulator's requests and they turned over 60 gigabytes of data for evaluation. And the regulator also looked at evidence from witnesses and looked at the company's
1: internal processes and procedures. So let me see if I could unpack uh, a little bit of this uh, with a little more detail. Uh, First of all, uh, I don't recall us having a discussion around a data regulator down to what would seem to almost be a municipality or perhaps a county-wide jurisdiction. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the the regulator, and it seems like he is uh, aggressive for his jurisdiction.
0: He is. And this is a peculiarity of the German system. So, most EU, well, every other EU um, country has one data protection regulator, and that's a national post. Germany is somewhat different in that there is a federal regulator, but he uh, investigates certain industries. So, former nationalized industry, Deutsche Bahn, uh, Deutsche Bank, Deutsche Telekom, Um, uh, those type of organizations, uh, and has issued uh, fines uh, as well. But then more regular businesses are subject to the jurisdiction of the regulator in the lander, if you like, the individual state within Germany. And this particular regulator, Professor Dr. Johannes Kasper, is fairly well known for his uh, attitude To enforcement. And he's also been critical of the way in which multinational corporations handle data. He's been uh, somewhat at the forefront of the issues around safe harbour and around privacy shield. And in fact, has levied fines against businesses for using safe harbour when that system collapsed. And the betting money is that he will do the same uh, with Privacy Shield as well. So, in some respects, uh, H&M had a bad case with bad practices in a bad place from a regulatory point of view because this business was based in Nuremberg. And whilst it was a Swedish parent company, Casper has got jurisdiction on the basis that this entity was based within his uh, jurisdiction.
1: And then the uh, the data itself, um, it's incredibly personal data. It is uh, things that I think people have long um, categorized as uh, I think you called it uh, special personal information, but certainly a uh, personal information is even the obtaining of this data uh, legal.
0: It can be legal in some circumstances, but you have to be able to justify it. And you also have to be transparent about it. And I think that's one of the issues in this case. You know, if I chat with employees, that's one thing. I ask after their welfare, how was your holiday? That's one thing. But if I'm going to keep notes of that and hold it against you, then I have to be, first of all, I have to have a good reason for that. Secondly, I have to have a lawful basis on which to do that. And that's quite a complicated thing. And and uh, and, and I have to do that proportionately and I have to have a justification, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, we're seeing many of these conversations, I think, many more in the workplace at the moment because of COVID. So, if I say to an employee... How was your holiday? They might say great. That might be normal routine conversation, and I might then say, "So where did you go?" And they say Portugal. Now, as an employer in the UK, for example, that rings alarm bells in me. You know, Portugal isn't on the safe list. So what do I then do with that employee? Do I say, uh, "Sure, enjoy your coffee," or do I say you should be at home isolating? Get you get get thee back home, and of course, the anti has been raised by the fact that some governments criminalise empl- uh, th- this conduct, and potentially the the, the employer uh, is also uh, commits a criminal offence in some cases by allowing the employee to remain. So this is a pre COVID case. It's important to stress that it's uh, practices that it seemed stop maybe towards the end of 2019. But I think we're seeing many, many more uh, conversations which might blur the line between interest in an employee as a person and interest in an employee as an employee. And GDPR requires us to be clear about that. If it's a friendly chat, it's a friendly chat. And I think employees will assume it's a friendly chat, Unless we tell them that things like these um, welcome back to work meetings are actually on the record rather than off. So, a lot of strange practices. I suspect a lot of lack of clarity with employees. And I think it's significant that H M has confirmed today that every employee who worked for that entity since GDPR came into force in May 2018 will be compensated,'ll we'll receive some financial com-
1: compensation. Jonathan, I think we've used this phrase on this podcast series, uh, bad facts make bad law. Uh, do you see this a situation where truly the facts were so horrific that a, a kind of a new set of bad law or stringent laws developed, or is it the situation this is so far out of line with uh, really any acceptable HR practices? that it's going to be an outlier and most companies uh, won't face this situation? Or I guess it's a long-winded way of saying, what precedential value do you see in this case?
0: I think it's going to be uh, truly interesting for a number of reasons. Firstly, I think a lot of employees suspect that management is collecting data on them that they're uncomfortable about. And those employees are going to be running along now to their employer and making subject access requests, which they have the right to do under GDPR. You've got a month to respond in most cases. You can't ask for a fee. So employers brace yourselves for a lot of requests coming in. In some cases, uh, if you have employees in Europe, they're going to use the works councils to help them make those requests. And works councils are knowledgeable about uh, this type of application, knowledgeable about workforce productivity tools that are being increasingly used, and so you may have pain from works councils as well. And I don't think this is an isolated case. I have been involved in projects looking at the data that HR departments are collecting and sweating and... Uh, There's a lot of data out there. There's a lot of data that they're using. As just one example, uh, I have been involved in a couple of cases where employers have said to their employees, you can have a confidential counseling service. You can have a confidential mentoring service, but the contract with the counsellor or mentor required them to send notes of the meeting to the HR professionals so that they could hear what's going on. It's extraordinarily hard to justify that practice as lawful. And I think we're going to see other cases like this. And uh, and even the fault is with some common HR applications. You know, if I install a well-known HR application to manage data on employees. Some of those that I see have 120 fields of data. And unless you properly configure the system, and unless you say to people, only take the data that is necessary, then people uh, collect more data than they need. Just as one mildly humorous example, Tom, uh, a, a while ago, I was asked by a multinational business to look at why uh, people who had interviewed well failed to uh, failed to actually get beyond their induction process, and the reason being given as data protection. On the uh, you know the reason the employee didn't take up the appointment, and when we got down to it, it was. Uh, an HR team in Germany because the system said it had a field for collecting all sorts of data. One of the fields was father's blood group. Now, for a very, very small number of employees, maybe 20 out of A workforce of 40,000, that was relevant because some of them would be exposed to certain chemicals uh, where the blood group was a factor in, in, in whether they would suffer or not. But obviously, for the majority of the workforce, it wasn't relevant at all. What the system should have done was blocked out that field so that it was only collected in rare cases, but it didn't. And what, a, what an, a, a German HR team that w- wasn't well-trained did, the conversation went, ah, Mr. Fox, you've turned up. Uh, you interviewed very well. This is your induction. But before I start the induction, Mr. Fox, I need to know your father's blood group. And you would say, well, I don't have that sort of information on me. Why didn't you tell me this? Well, Mr. Fox, I'm afraid you're not allowed on the premises until you can go and get your father's blood group. And you might say, well, my father died 40 years ago. My mother died 30 years ago. I'm not going to be able to get my father's blood group quickly. Then they'd say, well, Mr. Fox, I'm afraid to say then the offer is withdrawn. And incredible though this sounds, <laughs> they, they were turning employees away even though they'd been through the interview process for not being able to remember their father's blood group. So so laughable though these cases are, and as extreme as they might seem, these cases are happening. And until we configure our software correctly, educate people correctly, train them correctly, have the proper processes in place, then I think we're going to see many more of these cases. And in some respects, Dr. Casper has given oxygen to this issue. And he's also, if you like, told employees that it is okay to complain. So my prediction would be, we're gonna see many, many more of these cases. Will the fines be as high? Probably not. But this is uh, a sign of things to come, I think.
1: Jonathan, we've talked on this podcast series a lot about uh, DPIAs. we talked a lot about data protection officers. I'm not sure we've spent a lot of time talking about educating h r, but it occurs to me in listening to this podcast that one of the most key constituents for uh gdpr compliance is h uh, r. do you see those types of discussions, that type of training going to h r at this point
0: yeah i I think it should and we've done we've done quite a lot of sessions that are h r specific, and I think we've got a formula to do them. Well, and from my experience, what you normally have to do is look at the entire employee journey and look at the data that's collected at each stage. And when you think about it, organizations collect a lot of data on employees. They collect a lot of data in resumes or CVs, some of it that they need and some of it that employees just volunteer Um, uh, Sometimes they'll then go and do some social media research into employees or background checks, and that information can uh, cause challenges as well if it's collected without justification. Some U.S. employers will do things like drugs tests, which are frowned upon in most of Europe. And then they'll go through the onboarding process where they might get more information from employees in terms of their household. They might uh, put them out to work on a uh, secure site where they need details of people they live with. Some corporations are collecting that data as part of their COVID response as well to work out the risk from employees. Some organizations are taking things like ethnic origin, sexual persuasion, often with the best of intentions, but that brings challenges as well. And then when employees exit the organization, we normally take a whole load more data about them as well. That might be an investigation if they're leaving for cause. It might be to support them if um, there's a downsizing going on. And then we take a lot more information in connection with things like share options with pension rights. And then at the very last bit of the employee journey, if there's a death in service benefit, we take details of who that is to be paid to. So, if you look at the at the life of an employee as a continuum, that sometimes helps look at the issues that you're going to get along that journey. But training is definitely necessary and definitely you need uh, HR-specific trading that elicits the challenges at each particular point along the continuum.
1: Jonathan, what uh, would you maybe distill down to three or four key takeaways from this enforcement action?
0: Well, I think you've probably already hit on one, education, absolutely necessary. Look at those six principles of good practice that, we dis- uh, that we've uh, described on earlier podcasts and make sure that you can comply with them look at the lawful process that we've said in the past, consent won't cut it for this type of data, configure your systems properly, uh, have a mechanism for responding to employee concerns uh, or or requests, and then obviously keep the training refreshed, keep the data secure. And by secure, we don't just mean you know, hackers marching in the front door or hacking your systems, but we also mean the risk of co-workers as well. In this case, it seems that uh, many managers had access to the data and it's hard to justify giving rights to all of that class of people. It's likely, you know, 50 managers is probably too much. It's likely that it should be two or three or four or five have access to the full set of data, and only then um, when when the need for those access, access rights is established. So, there's, uh, there's quite a lot of work to be done, I think, for many organizations, and this is a useful reminder, I think, of the sensitivities around HR data.
1: Jonathan, this has been a fascinating exploration of a case that uh, raises many, many issues that I don't think many employers have fully thought through uh, for U.S. companies, um, real wake-up call. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens down the road. Absolutely. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Life with GDPR. We're going to link to the quarterly Compliance Client Alert uh, that explores these topics in a little more in depth in our show notes, so check that out. Also, uh, check out uh, the quarterly website for a great number of resources around GDPR. Life with GDPR is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. During this corona health crisis, please be safe, stay safe, and stay sanitary. We look forward to visiting with you again next week.
0: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.